ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It is Tuesday the 13th of February. I'm Sally Sara coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Today, bushfire warning, a catastrophic fire danger declared for parts of regional Victoria, putting residents on alert. And as the nature of some bushfires evolves, how will firefighting techniques change to keep up? Now, we've not encountered fire behaviour as we've seen in here in the last 12 months. Uh, to get fires travelling at night time. Uh, night time is a quiet time when we're supposed to get in and do some burning out operations, but a number of times the fires have, have done just as much at night during the day. Australia's Welfare Delivery Agency is dealing with a massive backlog of more than one million unprocessed claims, leaving some people waiting months for payments such as the age pension. Financial experts and counsellors say the delays plaguing Services Australia are putting some people in economic distress and even at risk of homelessness. But the agency hopes to tackle the backlog with thousands of extra staff. Gavin Coote reports. It's a growing complaint among retirees who want to access the aged pension. They dutifully complete their applications online most of the time and sit there and wait. And sometimes that wait can be months rather than just a few days or weeks. Nick Bruning is an independent financial planner based in Perth and blames a backlog with Services Australia for the blowout in application processing times. It basically means that if you stop working, you have no other employment income. The only resource you can draw on is your savings and your super. So people are having to sort of drag money out of their superannuation before they expected to. Uh, And sometimes, you know, they accept that it might be a few days or a few weeks, but some of these things have been going on for months. So, you know, some people are really bitten into their super quite significantly. Services Australia, which is the government agency that manages Centrelink, Medicare and child support, now has a backlog of about 1.1 million claims. And Fiona Guthrie from Financial Counselling Australia points out it's causing distress for many who are waiting for financial support. You've just got to put yourself in those people's shoes. You don't have enough money. You've got an electricity bill to pay. You can't pay your rent. You're worried about putting food on the table for your children. It's ex- it's ex- awful. It's absolutely awful. And financial counsellors are on the front line of this, trying to help people through these really difficult times. We know people are really overwhelmed by it. Uh, really really stressed and it's really putting people at risk. Services Australia acknowledges it's a problem due to insufficient staff and inefficient processing systems. General Manager Hank Jongan insists it'll get better with an extra 3,000 staff that have been recruited since the federal government announced extra funding in November. It's normal to have a number of claims on hand, but it should be more in the order of four to 500,000. So as you can appreciate, this is an absolute priority for us. Now, we've recruited those staff at record pace. They're all on board. They're currently undergoing intensive training, as you can appreciate, uh, and uh, It's a matter of priority for us to get them working as quickly as possible. Many already working within the agency are hoping the bolstered workforce will help ease the current load. 
Melissa Donnelly is the National Secretary of the Community and Public Sector Union. There's a vicious cycle in terms of workloads, um, but what's important here is to get the staffing and resourcing model right. The increase in staffing um, will help with that. We want to make sure that that's ongoing staffing, uh, but we also need uh, the government and the agency to commit to this long term so Australians can expect better service standards from Services Australia. Financial planner Nick Bruning shares the optimism that extra resources will help, pointing to similar problems that have been addressed with the Department of Veterans Affairs. We've noticed that uh, certainly my aged care seems to be far more efficient, as does DVA when we're dealing with applications for seniors. Um, So obviously there's a solution to it. Perhaps it's just a question of staffing. Uh, But one way or another, you know, Services Australia, uh, particularly through Centrelink, is is arguably their biggest biggest function. And uh, it's just not performing. The baby boomers are increasing. There's more and more retiring. It's probably a problem that's going to to increase and not reduce over the next few years. They just need more staff. Services Australia says it is hoping to slash the backlog of claims by up to 60% by mid-year. That's Gavin Cooch reporting there. Well, Dr Darren O'Donovan is an expert in oversight and public administration and is a senior lecturer in administrative law at La Trobe Law School. He says Services Australia must learn the lessons from the RoboDebt Royal Commission. We all are looking for a system that gets it right, right at the start, and gets it right in a timely way. And so much of the past decade has been spent cleaning up historical errors. The organisation is trying to juggle remediating the past with meeting the challenges of the present. And the conversation we need to have is really about the future. What do you think RoboDebt taught us about understanding the human cost when these systems go wrong and or go slow? I think Australians would be very surprised that our government is still reliant on technology that dates back to the 80s and 90s. When a vulnerable person is talking to Services Australia, the system is not set up to have a checkbox for vulnerability. The system that these staff members are working with encumbers them. They have to go to great effort to record something as simple as this person is vulnerable and needs assistance in processing their claim. The Royal Commission was very strong in saying you've got to go to where the people are. And it's pretty extraordinary that we have this queue when nearly 70% of all interactions with uh, Services Australia are now wholly online. So that has been a a complete uh, sea change in the past decade, that this is an organisation that asks people to self-administer their claim online, often to puzzle over it, often to scan documents. And the audit office really asked us to think about, does that drive error? One thing that most listeners will volunteer, when you talk to people who interact with Services Australia or Centrelink, they'll always say, you know, you have to say what your situation is over and over and over again. You have to repeat yourself. And we are so far away from a system that operates on a tell us once and we'll check twice. That's the ideal service model. These systems and services Australia are so antiquated that they don't speak to each other. They're not people focused. They, they just focus on the individual transaction. What does that mean for individuals if they get 
stuck in this system and, and say, for example, with Medicare, if they're waiting to have a claim process, that can be hundreds of dollars sometimes and if that's taking weeks and weeks, that can make a big difference for someone who's on a low income. I think if we appreciated the human impacts of these delays we would have a better funded system. So over the past decade, we have had budget after budget that talked about efficiency dividends that cuts down the number of frontline staff. It says this saving will be used to fund other priorities. We would make this a priority if we could see what these weights mean. The uncertainty for someone on a disability support pension, we don't confront that human story. That's what your listeners need to think about. These aren't spreadsheet figures. They're human beings who really need to get the claim to give them certainty to go about the important things like focusing on raising their newborn baby. This organization lays the table for the most important moments in our lives. So again, we need engagement with Social Security. And that's a major message coming out of the Robodet Royal Commission. When it was the one time we as a nation stopped, but we stopped to criticize and to talk about something historical. We now need to keep that energy to think about where we want to get to and what we can achieve. That's Dr Darren O'Donovan, Senior Lecturer in Administrative Law at La Trobe Law School. The federal government has released the first Closing the Gap update since Australians voted down a proposal to enshrine an Indigenous voice to Parliament in the Constitution. Members of the Stolen Generations have gathered alongside politicians this morning for a breakfast at Parliament House, marking the 16th anniversary of the apology to the Stolen Generations. Alison Shaw reports. For many around the country, today is a day of reflection. Nearly 400 people, including survivors of the Stolen Generations, gathered for breakfast in Canberra to mark 16 years since former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd's apology to the thousands of Indigenous children forcibly removed from their families. Michael McLeod is a Stolen Generations survivor who helped organise the event. Always remember, this is about the members of the Stolen Generation. It's not about politics. It's not about anything else other than listening to the members of the Stolen Generation who are here. He says government policies towards closing the gap are crucial. We don't close shop just because there's no referendum. We've got to think about what is it that we've got to do next. The Closing the Gap strategy tracks key outcomes for Indigenous Australians in areas like health, education and economic opportunities. Today marks the first update since Australians voted down a proposal to enshrine an Indigenous voice to Parliament in the Constitution. Only 11 out of 19 socio-economic outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are improving. Just four are on track to meet their targets. In a speech to Parliament, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says outcomes have worsened in four critical targets. Children's early development, rates of children in out-of-home care, rates of adult imprisonment and tragically suicide. In response, the government says it will establish a new commissioner for Indigenous youth. The National Commissioner will be dedicated to protecting and promoting the rights, interests and well-being of First Nations children and young people. The Commissioner will address the unacceptable rates of out-of-home care, 
What it all comes down to is strengthening families and keeping children safe. The government has also announced it will invest more than $700 million in a new jobs program for communities in remote Australia. It comes after a damning report last week from the Productivity Commission, which warned the Closing the Gap initiative would fail without fundamental change. Assistant Minister for Indigenous Australians Malandiri McCarthy says the new policy will create 3,000 jobs over the next three years as a replacement for the Community Development Program, or CDP. When we came to government, we said we needed to look at uh, the CDP program, which it currently is, and abolish it because we recognised it didn't have superannuation, it didn't have holiday leave, it didn't have all the entitlements, entitlements that come with supporting workers. So this is our first step. It's a significant announcement uh, embarking on, uh, you know, the future of this uh, remote jobs program and that we have to give uh, some confidence to uh, First Nations people across the states who are on the CDP currently uh, that we have a plan. It's a policy supported by the Coalition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Peak Organisations. Acting Lead Convener Catherine Little says she's confident the government will work with Indigenous Australians to find solutions. We heard a, a government commitment to say we're going to work differently, we're going to work harder, we're going to invest in your solutions and uh, I think that's what as a coalition we'll be pushing in on because we, we focus on the priority reforms and those priority reforms say listen to our voices, help us design our own solutions and let's get things moving. That's Catherine Little there from the Coalition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Peak Organisations ending that report from Alison Shaw. On the radio and online and on the ABC Listen app, you're listening to The World Today. As Israel celebrates the rescue of two hostages from Gaza, international condemnation of its plan to attack the city of Rafah is growing louder. Palestinian health officials say more than 100 people were killed in Rafah during the Israeli air raids on Sunday night. Meanwhile, the European Union's top diplomat has suggested that the US sell fewer weapons to Israel. Nicole Johnston has the latest. A night of air raids across Rafa. Palestinians described it as terrifying. Israel dropped bombs on a city where 1.3 million people are barely surviving the war. In the morning, bodies piled up laid out on the ground, shrouded in white. A man raises the body of a small child above his head. Yusuf Hamash works for the Norwegian Refugee Council and lives in Rafa. Last night we lost that sense of safety that we had for a couple of weeks at Rafa. When we woke up at the mid after the middle of the night on the huge bombardment all over across Rafa, more than 15 houses, several mosques, bombardment didn't stop up to the early morning. I thought the military operation is just, just started and that that was going to be the end for us in Rafa and we are going to a bloodbath. The Israeli military released this video. It says this is the moment. Two Israeli hostages were rescued from a heavily guarded apartment in Rafa. Israel says the airstrikes provided cover for the operation. Idan Bijarano is the son-in-law of one of the hostages who was rescued, Louis Ha. We saw them, um, a lot of tears, hugs, not many words, just being together, surrounded by the family and surrounded by our beloved people that were without us 
for so long, more than four months. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu praised the special forces who carried out the rescue, calling it perfect. I want to tell you that the release of Lewis and Fernando is one of the most successful operations in the history of the State of Israel. There are still around 100 hostages being held in Gaza. Hamas kidnapped more than 240 during its October 7 attack on southern Israel. About 130 were released during a prisoner swap deal with Hamas. Mr Netanyahu says the war is necessary to put pressure on Hamas to free more hostages. But international pressure is growing on Israel not to launch a full-scale attack on Rafah. In the Netherlands, a Dutch court has ordered the government to stop exporting fighter jets to Israel. And the EU's top diplomat, Joseph Borrell, has suggested the US and other countries use weapons as leverage with Israel. How many times have you heard the most prominent leaders and foreign ministers around the world saying too many people are being killed? President Biden said this is too much on the top. It's not proportional. Well, if you believe that too many people are being killed, maybe you should provide less arms in order to prevent so many people being killed. And from the US, White House National Security Advisor John Kirby has called on Israel to provide an escape route for people in Rafah. But it's home to those folks. That's Gaza's home. Um, and they shouldn't be forced to leave Gaza if they don't want to leave. Now, if there's going to be operations in Rafah or around Rafah, the Israelis have a commitment an obligation to make sure uh, that they can provide for the safety of innocent Palestinian people that are there. On the diplomatic front, Jordan's King Abdullah is in the US meeting President Joe Biden. President Biden says the US is doing everything possible to make an agreement between Israel and Hamas to pause the war for at least six weeks. For Gazans, it can't come fast enough. That's Nicole Johnston. Fires are burning in Victoria's west in what could be the worst fire conditions since the Black Summer fires four years ago. Emergency crews say they've been called to multiple blazes in and around the Grampians National Park. A catastrophic fire danger warning is in place for districts of western Victoria and almost all of the state is facing extreme fire risks. Angus Randall reports. It could hit 40 degrees in parts of western Victoria today. Coupled with northwesterly winds over 50 kilometres an hour, it's making firefighters nervous. Jason Heffernan is from the Country Fire Authority. We haven't seen these catastrophic conditions before. In fact, it's the first time Victoria has had a catastrophic fire day since the introduction of the Australasian fire danger warning system. So uh, it will be a challenging day. It does mean for communities in those areas, uh, if your plan is to leave early, uh, you should have already done so. Alongside the catastrophic fire danger facing the Wimmera in western Victoria, large parts of the state, including Melbourne, have an extreme fire danger rating. It's the fourth day of a statewide heat wave. Jason Heffernan says the heat will break, but that comes with a new set of risks. We are expecting quite a sharp uh, westerly and southwesterly change to come through the state later on in the evening. However, that in itself is going to bring some dangers to firefighters and communities. Uh, we are expecting uh, thunderstorms and storm events 
there's potential for dry lightning and winds up to 100 kilometres an hour. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility today where we will see fire, uh, but also storm effects affecting communities as well. This summer, the east coast has avoided the hot and dry conditions that usually come with an El Nino system. James Todd is from the Victoria State Control Centre. He says the early summer rain creates more danger late in the season. We've had a fairly mild summer, quite, you know, overall with reasonable amounts of rainfall. I think what that has created is, as I said, there's uh, particularly in our grassland areas uh, and cropping areas, you know, there's lots of, there's a fair bit of growth in those, in those areas. So on days like today, when it's hot and it's windy, if a fire gets going, uh, there'll be plenty of fuel. We're just wanting to make sure that residents in those areas are planning and we're saying don't try and stay and defend your home on such a day as that uh, that could result in the loss of life. Kylie Zanka is the mayor of Yarriambiac in northwestern Victoria. The shire is home to around 6,000 people. She says despite the warnings, most people are staying in place. To the best of my knowledge, I don't know of anyone who did evacuate. I do know of people who sought further information and clarification around things. Um, other people have popped, you know, fire plans in place, like anecdotally, so they know what to do. Um, people who were vulnerable or aged or concerned do have, you know, other um, services checking in on them as well. So it isn't just sort of council that's keeping an eye on everyone, it's a community looking out for everyone realistically. It's a similar story further west. Tim Meir is the mayor of West Wimmera Shire. They just feel like closing the schools and, and childcare centres and the kindergartens and things like that is, is a little bit too dramatic. They don't feel as though it's actually going to be that bad a day. It's a lot different. Like if you're in the Grampians in the mountains and a lot of places where you've only got one road in, one road out type thing, that's, that's all fair enough. But around here, it's it's not that bad. We know it's going to be a, a bad day if a fire starts and we don't want to have a fire start, but no-one's sheltering in place and in a panic, that's for sure. Shan Skinner is from Mertoa Caravan Park, 25 minutes northeast of Horsham. She says the use of catastrophic by emergency officials has created some anxiety. It just did cause a certain level of concern amongst uh, yeah residents and caravan park patrons. Yeah, well, I've got... One bloke I'm actually with my other job at the moment, he's uh, hitched on but hasn't gone to him. He said, well, what's the point? I said, they're going to protect the town, mate, so you'll be right. The children are all home today because the schools are shut, which is a government department thing, I guess, for safety, so not much we can do about that. If you're near a fire danger zone, check the Vic Emergency website for updates and tune in to your local ABC radio station. That is Angus Randall there. As the bushfire risk ramps up again, experienced firefighters say crews are facing challenges they've rarely seen before. Our reporter Stephanie Smale caught up with one veteran firefighter to find out more. When Wayne Walter Spuel started fighting fires in Queensland in the early 1980s, he used very different equipment. You had a uh, four-wheel drive ute with a 400-litre black tank and a pump and a hose, well, that was about it. And an old brass knapsack that would sit on your back and it would cut into the small of your back because they were sharp and heavy. He's now the regional manager of rural operations for the Queensland Fire and Rescue Service, based in Toowoomba, west of Brisbane. But he's been on the ground battling blazes for years, including the devastating fires that ripped through Victoria's Gippsland region in 2002. The sky went black at 1.30 in the afternoon and uh, you're flat out seeing very far in front of you and that was back at the control point. One of our units um, had the window sucked out, was blowing that hard. Uh, I actually thought that afternoon 
we may have been close to, to losing life. So after fighting fires for 40 years, you'd think Wayne Walter Spuel had seen it all. But he explains the blazes that swept through Queensland's Darling Downs in October last year burned differently. Now, we've not encountered fire behaviour as we've seen in here in the last 12 months. Uh, to get fires travelling at night time, seven kilometres. Uh, night time is a quiet time when we're supposed to get in and do some burning out operations, but a number of times the fires have, have done just as much at night during the day. What can you do to try and manage that changed fire behaviour? We'll change the way we are prepared. So we're more prepared at, at lower weather forecasts. So when we reach a, a trigger point, we'll have aircraft as part of our initial attack. Wayne Walterspiel points out the science of understanding fires and how they behave has improved the way emergency crews and their bosses respond. Some people think that's a hard call, making everyone come back in, stop firefighting, but it's actually one of the easiest calls I've become to, to learn how to make. As, as long as people are safe, we can always go back and attack the fire. He says community awareness campaigns have also been a big help in getting people to prepare their homes. What is it like for firefighters when there is property damage and homes have been lost? It, it knocks the morale around a, a fair bit because they uh, haven't gone out there and haven't succeeded in the task they thought they were going out to do, which is protect people's life and property. Uh, and our number one priorities is protecting life and then property and the environment. And with Victoria and other states on fire alert today, authorities are again warning people it's time to assess their risk and make sure they've got a safety plan. That's Stephanie Smale reporting. And that's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Sally Sara. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Since the government broke an election promise and changed the Stage 3 tax cuts, coalition's been warning there could be many more broken promises to come. Specifically, it says the tax incentive, known as negative gearing, is the next thing on the chopping block. Today, economics editor at The Conversation, Peter Martin, on what it is and whether we really need it anymore. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listener. app.